this week, in the middle of a video call with our executive producer, Chad, I absentmindedly pulled my hair out of its ponytail holder to reveal an absolute bird's nest. I saw a surprised look on Chad's face and caught a glimpse of myself in the little box showing my side of the conversation. Oh gosh, I said, I think I forgot to brush my hair today. Chad just laughed. I did brush my teeth though, I said. Somehow, I don't think that made Chad feel better about the state of my mental health or personal hygiene during this pandemic. I have no idea when brushing my hair will become second nature again. I'm one of the lucky people who's able to work remotely, and I'm not sure when I'll be going back to an office. Not till the virus is much more under control in the US or we have a vaccine. Who would have thought hair care and vaccinations would in any way be linked? I'm Anna Rothschild, and this is Podcast 19 from 538. This week, our show is all about vaccines. We'll talk about a new vaccine developed by a biotech company that has some exciting early results. And we'll learn about the people who want to get the coronavirus to help develop a vaccine, even if doing so might cause more problems than it solves. But first, Russia has announced that it's approved a vaccine for COVID-19 and plans to launch a mass vaccination campaign this fall. Reportedly, it will be starting with teachers and medical workers as early as this month. The Russian vaccine has not gone through phase three clinical trials, and there have been reports that Russia cut corners in earlier testing as well. To learn about the political and medical ramifications of this vaccination campaign, I spoke with Judy Twig. She's a political scientist at Virginia Commonwealth University and an expert on public health in Russia. We recorded this conversation last week, before the vaccine was officially approved. So, Dr. Twig, before we even get into the politics of this move, just how well prepared would Russia have been to make a COVID vaccine so quickly? Well, they claim that they're able to get out of the gate so quickly on this because they're basing this vaccine development process on an earlier Ebola vaccine that they developed back in 2014-2015 associated with the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. So that's their explanation, that they're ahead on the science already because they've been working with this kind of, uh, this kind of platform for a while. Right. So they're, they, un, they have an understanding of the vaccine technology, but not necessarily of this specific virus. Oh, that's absolutely true. Yes, they're, you know, I mean, this, this is a novel coronavirus, so it's new to everyone. So there's no way they could have had a, a complete head start on, on everyone else. So it, it's pretty clear that they are cutting some corners or, or, you know, how do we put this delicately? You know, they, they're accelerating some processes that no one else seems to be willing to accelerate in order to be first out of the gate or to claim that they're first out of the gate. So what is Russia's sort of history in general with vaccine creation and distribution? If we go back decades into the Cold War period, they were one of the global leaders in vaccine development and production. Uh, they collaborated with the United States on the polio vaccine. Uh, back during the 1950s, uh, that, that polio vaccine was developed much more quickly and successfully than it would have been otherwise because of very tight collaboration between the United States and the Soviet Union. 
And then in the 1960s and 1970s, they were instrumental in the smallpox eradication campaign. They donated more smallpox vaccine to the World Health Organization than all of the other countries combined. Um, they developed the freeze drying process that enabled delivery of the smallpox vaccine to some fairly harsh environments and in, uh, in poor countries around the world. So they were a global leader in vaccine development, production, distribution during the Cold War. Then when the Soviet Union collapsed, you know, its medical industry, its pharmaceutical industry collapsed, and it's taken them quite a while even to begin to build back. Um, but over the last 10 years or so, um, Russian President Vladimir Putin has had in place a pretty aggressive import substitution program for the medical industry and for our, for the pharmaceutical industry. And so they've put a lot of money, not just into vaccines, but into drug development as a whole to try to become less dependent on imports and, and regain some of that stature that, that they had before. So they're definitely not back to where they were, but they certainly have some capacity that they wouldn't have had 10 or 15 years ago. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know a lot of that about the history of, of Russian vaccines. That's super interesting. Yeah, there are some, you know, pretty um, interesting voices out there right now arguing that we should be looking back to that history of American-Russian collaboration in vaccines and be thinking about something along the lines of that kind of vaccine diplomacy now. How possible do you think such a collaboration would actually be, knowing what you do about both Russia and American politics today? Well, everyone's going to try to get political advantage out of this, right? You know, Russia definitely has accelerated their development and, and is cutting these corners because they want their Sputnik moment. And they're even using that vocabulary, right? They, they want a Sputnik moment that will achieve Putin's goal of reestablishing Russia's great power status. Um, part of that, though, for Russia could be um, offering a vaccine that they develop to the international community in ways that the United States and the Trump administration clearly is not uh, planning to do at the moment. Um, so you know, there are a couple of leaders in the Russian vaccine community that have even talked about the possibility that you know, the United States would license and manufacture this Russian-produced vaccine. And that's, that seems kind of ridiculous at the outset. Um, but but Russia clearly would want to play this for any political advantage that they could, as difficult as, as tight collaboration might be. Do you think it's ridiculous because the U.S. like public health uh, people would, would say, we don't think this vaccine has been tested enough and that's the reason why it might not go through? Or would it not happen for more political reasons? I think both, but... It's clear there's no history of innovative drugs or vaccines developed in Russia that have got regulatory approval in the United States, Europe, Japan. Um, so it would be unprecedented for something that was developed in Russia to get that kind of regulatory approval, not just in the United States, but in, in any of the Western countries. Um, right now, Russia says there are about 20 countries interested in manufacturing its vaccine, including India, Brazil, Saudi Arabia. They even have said that they have some American companies, um, drug companies, that they've had conversations with. But, uh, but yeah, both the scientific and the political hurdles are pretty high. One political hurdle is that Russia has a history of spreading healthcare disinformation. 
So the disinformation campaigns go back to the Soviet era. And, you know, this isn't a new thing, right? The KGB did this for decades before the Soviet Union ever fell apart. Um, with health disinformation, it kind of entered a new era with HIV AIDS. And the disinfo campaigns that started back in the 1980s uh, about HIV AIDS having been uh, developed and, and manufactured by the CIA as a tool to destabilize societies around the world. Um, you know, there's quite a bit of, of disinformation around, around HIV AIDS. And then more recently, for the last 10 years or so, uh, the Russian disinfo has really centered on vaccines and on trying to create pockets of vaccine refusal vaccine hesitancy. Um, and that's been aimed not just at the United States, but at countries all over Europe and, uh, and especially right in Russia's backyard, places like Ukraine, other countries in Eastern Europe. What do Russians uh, tend to think about vaccines? What is the state of vaccine hesitancy in Russia itself? Oh, that's a great question. So back in the Soviet period, vaccine compliance was somewhere in the neighborhood of 100%, right? You know, there, there aren't many benefits to uh, being an authoritarian society, but one of them is that you can tell people to get vaccinated and they get vaccinated. So the, the Soviet Union actually had a you know, pretty rigorous vaccination schedule and very high compliance with it. That eroded significantly when the Soviet Union fell apart. And so we saw outbreaks of diphtheria, measles, you know, lots of these vaccine-preventable childhood diseases in various parts of the former Soviet Union um, back in the 1980s and 1990s. And most of them were linked to particular media events, um, you know, where there would be one sensational, completely wrong um, article in a national newspaper that got lots of people believing that there was some kind of risk to their kids or to their families through, through vaccinating their kids. And that would get lots of people to, uh, you know, do what we've seen happen for years here in the United States as well, kind of jump on this anti-vaxxer bandwagon and, uh, and create, uh, create pockets of unvaccinated children. Um, that has ebbed and flowed in Russia over the years, but right now there's quite a bit of hesitance around a COVID-19 vaccine in particular. Um, I was just looking at some of the public opinion polling data from just the last month or two in Russia. Um, about a third of Russians don't believe in the pandemic at all. They oh, don't believe wow. in COVID-19 as a thing, right? So that's even higher than than what we have here in our fractured society where COVID is, is so politicized. Um, they don't trust the information that the government is giving them about COVID-19. Only about 30% of Russians, um, and this is polling that took place um, just this month, or just last month in July, only about 30% of Russians say they trust the official information on COVID, and 65% say they only partially trust government information or don't trust it at all. And then in June, there was a poll that asked whether or not people would get a vaccine when it was available. Um, only 16% said they'd get a vaccine right away. Um, and it compare that to the United States, where somewhere around half of people say we'd get a vaccine right away. And 38% of Russians say they would never get a COVID vaccine. Oh, wow. That's staggering. That is staggering. There are reports that Russia has sped through multiple steps of the testing process in order to approve this vaccine. So we know that they've been, they kind of um, 
from what we hear, they cut corners a little bit on animal trials, which usually would be um, the first part. Um, and they went into phase one trials on safety with small numbers of people fairly quickly. Um, that raised a lot of questions because there were reports that some of the vaccine researchers gave the vaccine to themselves and to people in their labs and people in their families um, in ways that aren't necessarily standard procedure and don't necessarily adhere to uh, to medical ethics. Um, then they went into phase two trials um, involving, you know, just dozens or hundreds of people. Um, uh, and they say that they have established the safety and the efficacy of their vaccine. In the U.S., the next step would be a phase three trial that follows tens of thousands of people from different backgrounds. These trials are used to determine whether a vaccine actually protects people from the virus. But if there's an adverse effect that only occurs in certain people, the hope is that enough volunteers will get the vaccine to reveal a trend. It sounds like what they're planning to do either concurrently with or maybe as a phase three trial is vaccinate a whole lot of volunteers from the health worker community and teachers they've mentioned as people who are involved in phase three, phase three trials. Well, we're also hearing from social media reports that there are a handful of government workers um, who are getting letters basically saying, implying that their jobs are dependent on their agreeing to participate in this next phase of vaccine delivery. Oh, um, geez. So, yeah. So it sounds like some people are, um, are, seeing or perceiving some some pretty intense pressure from the authorities to get the vaccine and get it now or get it very soon when they start this next uh, this next phase of testing. So um, it's not clear what the plans are to follow all of the people who are involved in this next phase of testing. Um, it certainly sounds like uh, an accelerated process that wouldn't meet the kinds of uh, the kinds of, of standards that we would have here in the United States. How bad has the pandemic been in Russia? So Russia has the fourth largest number of total reported cases in the world after the United States, Brazil, and India. Um, they, so that's 860,000 cases that they reported um, and about 14,500 deaths overall. Um, so that's you know, they're reporting in the neighborhood of now 5,500 cases a day and about 100 to 150 deaths a day. So that's, you know, what, an order of magnitude lower maybe than, than what we're seeing in the United States along, along some of these indicators. Um, so it, it's been bad at times in Russia. Now, I need to um, put some caveats around all of those statements because that's reported cases. And there are some pretty good reasons to believe that the official data that we're getting out of Russia aren't correct. What makes you say that? A couple of things. One is the, the number of people on social media, um, healthcare workers and, and local government officials in Russia who are saying these numbers make no sense. They absolutely don't track with what I'm seeing in real life. And so, you know, what you're seeing on the official Russian coronavirus website and and uh, 
and, and the official statistics just don't match with what people are reporting on the ground. But the other thing that I've noticed in the last month or so, tracking not just the cases at the national level, but the cases at the at the regional level, you know, their analog of our state by state data, is that the curves are weirdly smooth. It's happening in so many of Russia's regions for such an extended period of time that it looks suspiciously like somebody is just making up these numbers. There are a few reasons Russia might want to fudge the data. One is that, as is the case everywhere, um, the pandemic has been very highly politicized in Russia. Um, at the national level, it was politicized by Putin because he had hoped this spring to have that big constitutional referendum on amendments that potentially keep him in office until the year 2036. Um, he had to postpone that referendum. And then he also wanted his big Victory Day celebrations for the 75th anniversary of the victory over the Nazis. You know, all those things were you know, part of his grand plan to have a really great spring 2020. And so we did see some curious um, sort of trends down in the reported numbers right after Putin announced that he was rescheduling those Victory Day celebrations and had rescheduled that referendum. It's almost as if, you know, maybe they weren't manufacturing the numbers in the Kremlin, but the people at the local and regional levels kind of understood that they needed to report numbers that were trending in the right directions in order to make it possible for Putin to have his big parties um, and, and his referendum vote in, uh, in Moscow. What is the political value for Russia being the first country to release a vaccine? Is it just in the eyes of the world or is it is it internal as well? It's in the eyes of the world, but you've asked a great question. It's hugely important internally. And they have been talking about it so much in Russia state media over the last few weeks. Um, so here's Putin's challenge right now. His public opinion numbers are down. They were down before COVID-19 happened. Um, he's facing some pretty serious challenges related to the economy, related to some regional governors who are more popular than he is. Um, you know, massive, unprecedented protests in Russia's Far East um, over the last few weeks. Um, when Putin has had issues with sagging popularity in the past, over the last couple of decades, um, one of the tools that he's had at his disposal for a rally around the flag effect is to engage in some, some kind of foreign adventure, right? So Crimea is probably the biggest example of that. You know, it's amazing how popular that illegal annexation of Crimea was with the Russian public back in 2014, and it just kicked Putin's approval ratings um, into the stratosphere. Um, well, Russia doesn't have the resources to do something like that right now, and it's certainly not a practical thing to do in the middle of a global pandemic. So there's this major political tool um, to try to generate, again, that rally around the flag effect that that Putin doesn't have at his disposal right now. So how do you rally people behind the idea that Putin's doing a great job and, and is an indispensable leader? Um, one of the ways you might do that is through the boost and the visibility that you get from being first to a COVID vaccine. Ethical questions surrounding COVID vaccines don't only exist in Russia. Even in the US and UK, the medical world is wrangling with big decisions about the best way to run vaccine studies. 
For example, some scientists think we should use something called a human challenge trial, which has raised some major ethical issues. Here to discuss is 538's Kaylee Rogers. So we're starting phase three clinical trials for multiple COVID vaccines right now, but some people think we should be doing a different kind of trial called a human challenge trial. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so I think the first time you hear what a human challenge trial is, it makes a lot of sense logically. So with a normal phase three trial, what you're doing is giving the vaccine to participants in the trial and then sending them back out into the world to live their life. And eventually you would expect come into contact with the virus to see whether or not the vaccine protects them from their encounter with the virus. With a human challenge trial, you don't send people out at all. You actually purposely inject them or uh, challenge them with the virus itself in the you know, lab setting of the experiment. So you find out right away whether or not the vaccine works. Right. And the thing with clinical trials is you don't necessarily know if the people who you vaccinate are going to encounter the virus at all, which is part of the reason why you need to give the vaccine to so many different participants. I think a lot of the clinical trials we're talking about now have something like 30,000 participants in them. Exactly. And it sort of depends on local community transmission, right? If you Uh, or a trial participant and you go back to your city and then there's a huge outbreak, there's a higher likelihood that you might come into contact with it. If you go back to your city and they've just come off of a big outbreak and have managed to get it under control, you might not have that same level of risk. So, I mean, it makes sense why a a human challenge trial would work in in seeing if the vaccine is actually effective because you're, you're actually giving people the virus and seeing if they can fight it off. But this, of course, also brings up some ethical issues. Right. So the reaction you get from sort of an average person hearing this, which is like, oh, that's logical, it makes sense, versus like a scientist or a doctor is very different because they're like, oh my God, no, we shouldn't give people a potentially deadly virus, that's a terrible idea. Um, This is just kind of crossing a line that a lot of researchers think um, we shouldn't be doing, especially with a virus that we know so little about still. So we could, for example, only include participants in a trial like this who are young and otherwise healthy. But even within that group, we know that sometimes those people have still died from COVID. And if not, they've sometimes had complications and we're still not sure what the long-term effects are from this infection. So it's really, really risky to be purposely exposing people to this virus to find out if a vaccine works or not. I mean, we have done challenge trials for certain diseases in the past. Why were those deemed a good idea? Right. So this is something that's been done before and and fairly recently. Uh, Malaria is a good example. They've tested malaria vaccines using a challenge trial. So give the participants the vaccine and then give them malaria and see if the vaccine works. Some of the differences are we understand these diseases a lot better. They've been around a lot longer. We've had plenty of time to study them. And also, really importantly, we have cures for them. So malaria, for example, especially in a medical, highly observed setting where you can give them some treatment right away, it's really, really low risk to be uh, challenged with it versus COVID where, you know, we don't really have a good curative treatment yet. We're already pretty far along in the clinical trial process for at least a a few of the vaccines under investigation. Would this really speed up the process? Would doing a human challenge trial really speed up the process at all? Right. So that's sort of been the main argument for it is people are like, if we can get it even a month sooner and people are willing to volunteer and the, you know, the risk is somewhat low, 
surely we should just do it, right? We, we need to get this vaccine. There's such urgency. But as you mentioned, we're already in phase three for a number of different vaccines. We're already pretty close to the point. And a human challenge trial isn't something you can just set up overnight. One thing you have to do is develop the dose of the virus itself so you know exactly how much to give somebody to provoke sort of a normal reaction that they would get if they were to encounter it out in the wild. And we don't know what that is yet. So people would have to develop that first before we could even set up something like this. And in the meantime, we potentially could have a vaccine candidate complete the full trial course that it's already in. One thing I've been thinking about recently is whether work from home orders might actually like impede our ability to accurately test the test a vaccine in phase three trials. Like are so few people going to be exposed to the virus that we might just not get accurate results? Is that a concern that any scientists have? It is a concern for sure. And it's something that is why many of the phase three trials that are starting or are going to be starting soon are in many different places to kind of like hedge our bets. Um, So there's trials taking place in South Africa and Brazil, the United States, in the UK, to sort of make sure that we get enough people that are naturally exposed to it, that we can actually get the results that we need to determine if it works or not. I think What's interesting about the debate that I've been reading about and that I wrote about with human challenge trials is that it's still it's not off the table. Um, So even the ethicists that are like, I really don't know how I feel about this, um, are okay with it being explored as an idea, especially as kind of a backup plan. So if we have trouble getting the results and enough data from the natural normal exposure you'd have from a phase three trial, this could be potentially an alternate that we could do to complement that research or afterwards to double check things. It also could potentially be useful for comparing vaccines. So if the first one that we managed to get through the gates is, let's say, maybe only 50% effective, we're going to want to keep searching and finding one that's more effective than that. And a human challenge trial would be a way to sort of compare those. So you'd be able to give two different vaccines to people and challenge them with COVID and see if it works better or not. Right. And at that point, it would have already gone through a phase three clinical trial. So maybe you're mitigating those risks a little bit. Yeah, that's the hope. So you know that there's at least some efficacy and you can protect the people that are are choosing to take part in this trial. Right. I mean, if if we get to a place where we do want to go ahead with human challenge trials and the scientific community and the medical ethicist community sort of agree it's the time to do this, how quickly could we get one of these trials off the ground? Like, are there already plans in the works to implement them once we kind of get the go ahead? Yeah, so there's sort of a a couple of different levels that are already in pursuit. So there is a researcher at Oxford who's already trying to set up a trial like this. Um, And like I said, we'd have to start searching for that viral dose, which some researchers have already begun doing. There is a, a university in Belgium that's building a facility specifically designed to run these kinds of trials that, you know, isn't going to be built anytime soon, but they're thinking ahead to the point where if we do want to do this either for COVID or maybe for other pathogens that emerge, we have these places already set and ready to go. In addition to that, there's a, a, a movement, an organization that sprouted up called One Day Sooner that's really pushing for exploring the idea of human challenge trials. And as part of that, they've created a pool of volunteers. So people who have signed up to say, I understand the risks and I'd be willing to at least consider being a participant in these trials. And they've got more than 30,000 volunteers signed up already. So there's a pool of people out there that are willing to take part in these trials if indeed we get to the point where we're running one of them. 
Have you talked to any people who are willing to volunteer in these trials? And if so, what, what are their thoughts about it? Yeah, I actually spoke to two people. For the most part, it's a lot of young people who are otherwise healthy. And a couple of the things that they said that stood out to me and that kind of seemed the same uh, among, among a number of people is they said that they really want to help and feel kind of helpless at this time, which I think a lot of us can relate to. And, you know, the one woman that I spoke to is a grad student. She was like, I don't have a lot of money to donate to research or to different causes to help people during this time, but I'm healthy. And maybe this is a way that I could donate my health towards a cause to getting a a vaccine sooner and maybe saving lives that way. And they're aware of the potential risks. Like even if you're a healthy person, you know, there's always a chance that you could be one of the, the few healthy people who ends up getting a really severe case. Yeah, like I said, the one young woman that I spoke to was saying that she is fully aware of the the risks and, you know, has concern about that, obviously. She was even more concerned, she said, about the potential to have severe after effects, like lingering problems down the line. Because this is such a new disease, we don't know what happens to somebody who had COVID 20 years ago, right? So she's saying... even if I survive it and everything seems fine, we really don't know what could happen to me down the line. And that's pretty scary to think about. But she felt as though the risk of that was still worth it if she could be part of this really sort of important cause. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for doing this reporting and for speaking with me today. Thank you. Have a good one. And now for a little good news. A new vaccine has shown some exciting early results. The vaccine reportedly produces a big immune response, even with a low dose. In a small phase one study, the biotech company Novavax gave either its vaccine or a placebo to 131 people. Of the 106 people who actually got the vaccine, people got different doses and some got the vaccine in addition to something called an adjuvant. Adjuvants are substances added to vaccines to sort of poke at the immune system and provoke an even bigger immune response. All the volunteers who got the vaccine developed some level of antibodies after one dose, but the participants with the highest responses were those who got two doses of the vaccine and the adjuvant. Those people had antibody levels that were, on average, about four times higher than recovered COVID-19 patients. And that was true even for people who got a low dose of the vaccine plus the adjuvant. That means that in theory, the company could produce more doses at one time, which means more people might be able to get the vaccine right away. There were some side effects like mild to moderate pain at the injection site, headaches, and fatigue. And a few people reported more severe effects, but none of them sought medical attention and the effects weren't life-threatening. Of course, as I seem to say all the time on this podcast, take all of this with a grain of salt. This was a small study, and the results have still not been peer-reviewed. But some scientists are saying the results are more promising than those of other COVID vaccines at a similar stage of testing. So it's another step in the right direction. That's it for this episode of Podcast 19. If you have a question you'd like us to answer on the show, email us a voice memo at askpodcast19 at gmail.com. That's askpodcast19 at gmail.com. 
I'm Anna Rothschild. Our executive producer is Chadwick Matlin. Jake Arlo is our producer, but tragically, it's her last week with us. She's leaving us to write a middle grades book called Almost Flying. It's a queer coming of age story about a girl who loves roller coasters. Best of luck, Jake. Also, a quick programming note, we won't have an episode next week, so see you the week of the 24th.